Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So happy that you're joining me today on this Wednesday broadcast. And I want to begin the broadcast by telling you what we're going to be doing over the next couple of days. And over the next couple of days, we're going to be talking about the attitudes that ought to be, more commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. So we're going to be looking at the eight Beatitudes today, tomorrow, and Friday. But since it is so close to Christmas, I wanted to tell you the story of one of the most famous Christmas songs, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Now, one of America's greatest poets was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And I used to take the train or the T, which is the subway in Boston, over the Longfellow Bridge from Boston into Cambridge. Well, in the year 1860, Longfellow found his life was happy. I mean, he's enjoying a widening recognition. The presidential election was just finishing up and Abraham Lincoln was elected. And in Wadsworth's mindset, this was going to be the sign of freedom and redemption for the nation. Well, his life in our nation soon began to spiral out of control. In April 12, 1861, the Civil War began between the states. On July 9, 1861, Longfellow's wife Fanny was near an open window sealing the locks of her daughter's hair using hot sealing wax. Suddenly, her dress caught on fire and engulfed her in flames. Longfellow, who was taking a nap in the room next door, was awakened by her screams. As he desperately tried to put the fire out and save his wife, he was severely burned on his hands and on his face. His wife Fanny died the next day. Longfellow's severe burns would not even allow him to attend her funeral. His white beard, which he is so identified with, was one of the results of this tragedy. The burn scars on his face made shaving impossible. In his diary on Christmas Day, 1861, he wrote, How inexpressibly sad are the holidays. In 1861, the toll of war began to drag on and on. The dead count began to mount. And in his diary that year, Longfellow wrote on Christmas Day, A Merry Christmas, say the children. But that is none or no more for me. In 1863, his son, who had run away to join the Union Army, was severely wounded and returned home in December. There's no entry in Longfellow's diary for that Christmas. But on Christmas Day, 1864, at the age of 57, Longfellow sat down to try to capture, if possible, the joy of the season. In the depths of his despair, he wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. As he came to this third stanza, he was stopped by the thought of the condition of his beloved country. The Battle of Gettysburg was not that long past, and days looked really dark, and he probably asked this question, how can I write about peace on earth? Goodwill to men in this war-torn country where brother is fighting against brother and father against son. But he kept writing. And what did he write? He wrote, in, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and 
mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It seems as if he could have nothing kind to write that day. Then, as all of us should do, he turns his thoughts to the one who gives true and perfect peace and continued writing. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so there came into that marvelous evening, that Christmas carol song, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Isaiah the prophet was describing the Messiah's coming in Isaiah 61. And he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoners. 700 years later, Jesus Christ launches his public ministry by preaching this exact text, applying Isaiah's words to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recovery of the sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the leer of the Lord's favor. Jesus concludes, and he rolls up the scroll found in Luke 4.21, and he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Good news. Good news is a favorable announcement. To proclaim good news is to announce or to convey a message with positive information about an important or recent events. The Greek verb that is used in describing this is the word from which we get the word evangelism or evangelist. The writers of the New Testament assign this word specifically to the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. We are to proclaim the good news, meaning that our job is to give the good news of the message of salvation found in Christ alone. We proclaim this good news or we evangelize when we tell others about salvation being found in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the poor are those who had no inheritance, those who were financially impoverished, those of low social status, or those who were downtrodden, those who were oppressed, those who were disadvantaged. You know, in the United States of America, we actually make up less than 5% of the world's population but we earn more than 20% of the total world's income. Despite this, one in 10 Americans live in poverty, according to the Census Bureau. January is National Poverty Month in America, National Poverty Awareness Month. Those living in poverty can find it difficult to afford some of the necessities like housing and food. Government data sheds some light onto how many people live in poverty. And the challenges that they face, one in 10 Americans are facing economic challenges. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us eight attitudes that ought to be, eight ways in which we should be living out our lives as followers of Christ. And I want to go through these one at a time. Before we go through these, I I want to remind you there's certain things that God hates, but there's other things that God hates 
loves. And I know that may sound strange to hear that the Lord hates certain things, but in Proverbs chapter 6, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And here's the list haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and then number seven, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Proverbs lists these seven things that the Lord hates. The first one being haughty eyes, or those who are filled with arrogance, which is certainly the opposite of this first beatitude that Jesus talks about. It is the opposite of being poor in spirit. The last one on this list is one who stirs up dissension among the brethren, which is the antithesis of a peacemaker. You're either a peacemaker or you're stirring up trouble. In between, the characteristics include lying and killing and scheming, wicked things, rushing to do evil, and bearing false witness. These different sharply from the spiritual characteristics that the Lord loves. So there's seven things that God hates, but there's eight ways in which we can be blessed, eight attitudes that we should have. Number one, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what I'm going to do as we go through the eight Beatitudes is I'm going to give you the Old Testament background for the Beatitude. I'm going to give you the New Testament meaning of the text, and then we're going to have an application for each of the eight Beatitudes. So here's the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament background is this. As we look at the the background, we discover that there's a description here in the Old Testament of a messianic kingdom and those who enter it. It's found in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. And in this particular passage, we see Isaiah saying the Messiah is going to be the one that is going to preach good tidings to the poor. Now, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus read that passage in the synagogue, and it was fulfilled in their hearing. Uh, So that passage helps us just a little bit to understand the meaning of the poor. Now, we tend to think of poor primarily in terms of finances or possessions. Now, that's part of it, but there's a spiritual side to it as well. The word Isaiah uses to describe the people who had been taken into exile. They were, of course, poor. You know, they lost their land. Their possessions were ripped away from them. But they were also afflicted and oppressed. They were powerless. They were without hope. They were desperate. The physical poverty was intensified by the poverty they had in spirit. So in the New Testament, we discover that Jesus is using this poor in spirit, and he's talking about those who have few possessions, those who were usually oppressed, but he's also talking about those who had very little power, very little hope over their future. They had no resources to fall back on. They were dependent upon others. Isaiah brought the people of his day the news that they would be delivered from bondage. But Jesus fulfilled that promise and bringing good news 
by proclaiming the gospel of the good news of God. He did it by making them not rich in earthly possessions, but he filled a greater need. He filled their greatest need. Tim Keller offers the following definition of what Jesus meant by this term, poor in spirit. It means seeing that you are deeply in debt before God, and you have no ability to begin to be able to redeem yourself. God's free generosity to you at an infinite cost to him was the only thing that saved you. But many people today resist Jesus' teaching about spiritual poverty. He writes, on the contrary, you believe that God owes you some things. He ought to answer your prayers. He ought to bless you for the many good things that you've done. Even though the Bible doesn't use the term, by inference we can say that we are middle class in spirit. You feel that you've earned a certain standard with God through your hard work. You also may believe that success and resources that you have are primarily due to your own industry and your own energy. I want you to know that you're poor in spirit. There was a story told of a man who returned a watch that was worth $11,000. In 1972, a young Egyptian businessman named Farahat lost a watch. The watch was worth about $11,000. He was stunned when a garbage man dressed in filthy clothes found it and returned it to him. Farahat asked him why he didn't keep the watch. The garbage man said, well, my Christ told me to be honest until death. Farahat later told the reporter, I didn't know Christ at that time, but I told that garbage man that I saw Christ in him. I told him because of what you have done and your great example, I will worship the Christ that you are worshiping. Farahat studied the Bible, then he grew in his faith, and two years later, he visited that garbage man's village outside of Cairo, where there were between fifteen and 30,000 people living in poverty, living in a squalor. There was no electricity, no running water, alcohol, drugs, and gambling were pervasive. Men and women were sifting through these huge mountains of garbage, looking for something of value that could be sold for cash or maybe traded for food. Farahat found himself reflecting on the words of Jesus, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He also remembered the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.13, where he says, We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. It was soon thereafter that Farahat and his wife began ministering to people's spiritual and material needs. They preached the gospel throughout Egypt, and thousands of people turned to Christ. In 1978, Farahat and his church of about 10,000 believers met in a large cave outside of that garbage village, and it is the largest church of believers in the Middle East. In May of 2005, a day of prayer was held for Muslims to turn to Christ, and more than 20,000 Arab Christians gathered. The event was also broadcast on a Christian satellite TV network where millions were watching. All of this because one garbage man chose to humbly return a watch that would have made him the richest man in his town. It's no wonder, Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not saying that 
you got to be poverty-stricken financially. You've got to be poverty-stricken spiritually before you can receive the riches of Christ. So that was the first beatitude. Here's the second. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, we have a little different beatitude here. In the first one, there was a promise that was given to those who are poor in spirit. They have the kingdom. Here now, the promise is for the future. It is a promise given to those who mourn in the future, they will be comforted. Now, the Old Testament background is found in Isaiah 61 again, where Isaiah is also saying that the Messiah would bind up the brokenhearted. He would proclaim the hour when the mourners would be comforted, when their ashes would be replaced with a crown of joy, and their mourning would be replaced with the oil of gladness. That's found in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Now, mourning indicates there's pain, there's grief, there's anxiety over the soul of somebody who has lost somebody, often the death of a loved one. But it could be over the loss of valued life, such as those Israelites who went into exile and they had to mourn because they lost their freedom. Or it could be over the loss of possessions or status or health. People mourn over any disaster or any tribulation. And in times of mourning, they are looking for hope. And most often in this world, there's very little hope. So here's the meaning. The focus here is on the people of God who mourn because they will be comforted. Everyone experiences sad and tragic losses at some time or another in life. But the mourning that leads to comfort in the kingdom is that mourning over the humiliation of Israel and its cause. The nation was in the grips of tyrannical powers and and ruthless rulers, and it was all because of their sin. Jesus came and he announced the kingdom was at hand. He expected the response of the people would be tears of contrition. The Messiah would comfort those who mourn, but the comfort would be because the Messiah was coming to save them from their sin. The cause of their mourning was mourning over the consequences of their sin, but the Messiah was going to save them from their sin. So for mourning to be in the faith, it will be likewise a mourning, not just for the suffering and the sadness that we experience in life, but for the sinfulness that causes us to have to suffer. When is the last time that you were saddened because of your sin? That you were brokenhearted because of your sin? You see, oftentimes, we can't receive the fullness of being comforted because we've never fully mourned. You know, many years ago, I did a funeral for one of the leaders within our church, and his wife was was devastated by his loss, but she never seemed to mourn. I became so concerned over her, and, and I says, you're, you're too strong in this situation. You've just lost your soulmate. Uh, you were ministering together. You were together many years, and, and they had a miraculous testimony of God, how God saved them both out of a, a really rough lifestyle and, 
and God brought about redemption, and, and God changed their life, and, and he was preparing uh, to go to seminary, and he was leading our worship every Sunday, and then he was tragically killed. But his wife never seemed to go through the normal mourning process. Because she never went through that normal mourning process, two years after it hit her, and she went through a, a terrible bout of depression. And when she finally went through that mourning process, she was finally comforted. I guess when you go through a tragedy in life, you've got to make room for sadness. Eric Wilson, a professor of English at Wake Forest University, he wanted to become a happier person. He at least wanted to have a smile on his face, rather than the scowl people were used to seeing in him. Friends urged him on to a sunny disposition. He purchased books to become happy. He watched uplifting movies, and, and he inserted new words into his vocabulary, words like great and wonderful into his conversations. But none of these things seemed to help. And the professor went back to being his usual melancholy self, turning against what he calls the happiness movement. He wrote a book against happiness. He believes Americans are fixated on happiness to the extent of even fostering a craven disregard for whatever shows a mere hint of melancholy. And the happiness movement had its boom in the 1990s, motivated by scientific studies and uh, studies of the brain and the rise of positive psychology. We even saw this in churches, a happiness movement within the church. You know, come to Jesus. He'll make you happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. But now there's a backlash against that philosophy that says normal sadness is something to be smothered, even shunned. Further study has actually discovered that being happier is not always better. Those who know some discontent are motivated to improve their lot in life and the condition of their community. This is what he wrote. If you're not totally satisfied with your life and with how things are going in the world, you don't feel motivated to work for change. He continues by saying, you become more analytical, more critical, and more innovative when you realize you have a problem that needs to be addressed. You need the negative emotions, including sadness, to direct your thinking. Now, all of this seems to kind of echo what Jesus wrote and what Solomon wrote long ago when he says, there is a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance. You see, the greatest teacher of them all, Christ, was also quick to point out that those who mourn are those who are blessed indeed. Happiness has its place as does sadness, and they both have a place in a wider sphere of joy. You know, a couple tragically lost their six-month-old daughter. They named their daughter Hope. The daughter passed. The mother went to the store and was at a cosmetics counter buying some mascara and asked the clerk, will this mascara run down my face would I cry? The girl behind the counter assured her that it wouldn't. And then she asked with a little bit of nervousness in her voice, 
Are you going to be crying? Yes, I am. I am. We had hope for 199 days. We loved her. We enjoyed her richly. And we shared her with everyone we could. We held her during her seizures. And then we let go. The day after we buried Hope, my husband said to me, you know, I think we expected our faith to make this hurt less, but it doesn't. Our faith gives us an incredible amount of strength and encouragement. Well, we had hope, and we were comforted by knowing that she is in heaven. Our faith keeps us from being swallowed by despair, but I don't think it makes us hurt any less. It is only natural that people around me often ask, how are you? And for much of that first year after Hope's death, my answer was, I am deeply and profoundly sad. I've been blessed with many people who have been willing to share my sorrow to just be sad with me. Others, however, seem to want to rush me through the sadness. They want to fix me. But I lost somebody I love dearly, and I'm sad. Ours is a culture that is is uncomfortable with sadness. Sadness is awkward, and it's unsettling. But when you go through times of deep sadness, that is when you can enjoy the blessings of being comforted as you mourn. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.